All right, so we're going to do something that we've done similar to something that we've done before. We'll call this round two. The last time I did this was a while back. It was a little different, and it was really about real versus fake, okay? So we're going to talk about first, um, I guess, the actual versus the imitation. Maybe. I don't know if that's a good explanation or not, but maybe it'll make sense in a minute, okay? Y'all just bear with me. Okay, so I've got something here. One of them is one thing, one of them is another, but they look similar. So I'm going to see if you can guess what it is. All right, I'll hold them up so you can see them. All right, on one, we have a bowl of vanilla yogurt. Could be either one. The other, we have a bowl of mayonnaise. Can you tell which is which? All right. Somebody give a guess. My left hand, what is that? Okay. My right hand, how many think this is yogurt in my left hand? Okay, it's about half. Watch, some will raise their hand, some will raise for the other, and some just won't commit. Um, <laughs> all right, the right hand, how many thinks that this is the yogurt? All right, that's my right, your left. Everybody understand? We're on the same page? All right. <laughs> Who wants to try it to find out? Anybody? <laughs> I don't have a spoon. I thought about getting Annie up here, but I thought that was a little too cruel after a couple of weeks ago. Okay. So, again, how many think this is the yogurt? How many think this is the yogurt? This is the yogurt. So all you that thought this was it, Lou. Okay. All right, if you look close, you can tell, but from a distance, it's hard. All right, something similar but a little different, all right? Since we're kind of on an ice cream theme, and since Christmas is just around the corner, we're going to see. I've got two. I don't know if any of y'all have tried this. It's pretty yummy. So you can try it later, but Christmas tree cake ice cream. Have y'all heard about this? Mmm, that's good. All right. It's so good that one of these is empty because I've already eaten it. And one of them is full, but from just looking at these two containers, who thinks which one's empty? Somebody shout. Left hand or right hand? Left. All right. Who thinks the right hand's empty? All right. I got a few. All right. Who thinks this one's empty? Who thinks this one's empty? How do you know? You got to open it, right? So let's see. Who thought this one was empty? It was right hand. A few people. Okay, let's see. You were wrong. It's not even opened yet. Now this one, on the other hand, as I said, I've cleaned it out pretty good. So it's empty. But that's kind of the point of today's message. Some things you appear one way on the outside, but then when you really look closer or you take, uh, you look on the inside, you get a glimpse on the inside, you realize that they aren't quite what they appear. Some things are created to be as close to identical as the real thing is possible. But when you look closely or you try to use it or eat it, (laughs) you find out it's not. You know, I think the last time I used fake salt, has anybody ever tried fake salt? They shouldn't even call it. I don't even think they do. I mean, it's, it's all, it looks like it, but it's not the real deal. Some people are like that, right? They put off an appearance, but then when you get to know them, they really aren't what they appear to be. And this is one of the figures in our series that we're going to look at today. Our series that we've called Making an Impact in Your World and leaving a legacy, being faithful, leaving a legacy. We're going to talk today about things or individuals that are not quite what they appear to be. Mark Twain once said this, Everyone is a moon 
and has a dark side, which he or she never shows anyone. And that's the reality. As we're going through this, don't fall into the temptation of thinking, well, I know somebody just like that. Okay, because the truth is, we all have a dark side. It's whether or not we have allowed the Holy Spirit to to have control of that dark side. It's whether or not we've submitted that particular area of our lives to the Lord as it determines whether or not we are able to overcome that dark side. Because we all have one. And a, a man by the name of Rehoboam certainly did not do that. And we see the effects of that. And we see that Rehoboam... Uh, is is like the items that I just mentioned, particularly the ice cream, because on the outside, everything appeared to be great. But what was happening behind the scenes, he was not honoring the Lord. He was not, his motivation was not to please the Lord and to rule in a way that honored God, the kingdom, the nation of Israel. And the story of Rehoboam, he's a public man. He looked very genuine. Everything appeared to be fine. But these passages of Scripture, particularly 2 Kings 11 through 14, which are paralleled in 2 Chronicles chapters 11 and 12 to some degree, we see here in these passages of Scripture behind the scenes, if we look in these passages, we see a hard, realistic look at Rehoboam who was really pretty reckless with what God had given him. So let's take a look this morning. We're going to see first in this, that in Rehoboam's life, we're going to see the rise of a phony. And that's the first thing I want you to look at. Rise of a phony. To understand Rehoboam, we need to understand what helped him make him the man that he became. If you look, or one quote I found, Stephen Ambrose, who... Uh, has written a lot about history. He said this, he said, it's through history that we learn who we are and how we got that way. Why and how we changed. Why the good sometimes prevailed and sometimes did not. Now in 1 Kings 11, we see the story of Rehoboam's father. And you might be surprised, you may already know, but you might be surprised that his father's name was Solomon. Solomon was king After David and Rehoboam followed Solomon. And we see in this story, uh, in the story of Solomon, that God had given him wisdom. Um, He had given him what he asked for, which he asked for wisdom. God gave him that. And he gave him success. He gave him incredible wealth. But Solomon let his relationship with God slip. And we begin to see this slide in Solomon's life. And when we get to Rehoboam, we see that he takes it even further. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, we see King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. And they must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached and in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines. They turned his heart away from God. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. 
He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and unlike his father David, he did not remain loyal to God. Pay special close attention to verse 1. The writer mentions the Ammonite wives. And then verse 5, Milcom, who is a detestable idol of the Ammonites. And then verse 7, if you go past where we stop, Melech, the God who belonged to the Ammonite people. Solomon, a man of God, he started well. When he was given the opportunity to ask for anything he wanted, he asked, by God, he asked for wisdom. That's a great thing for a king to have, right? So he starts off well, but he ended up making the same mistake that David did, yet he took it a step further. David, what was one of the things that David did that that ended up causing him more trouble, really, than anything else? Bathsheba, too many wives, too many concubines. Bathsheba, all of that was, he had a problem with the ladies, okay? His problem was lust. And so he, he did that, but then Solomon takes it a step farther, and what we see is not only does he have many, many wives and concubines. He also brings wives from other areas God had forbidden, and he, he wants to appease them, so he allows them to, he sets up temples for them to worship their gods, but then that, it gets even worse than that. Something David did not do, he began worshiping those idols himself. He allowed those wives to pull his heart away from God. So that's the stage here. Solomon had gone a step farther, and because he had compromised, we see that influential men begin to desert him. And one of them was named Jeroboam, who becomes important in a little bit, a little bit later. The Lord promised Jeroboam that he would reign over Israel's ten, 10 of Israel's 12 tribes, which comes about. He would even build him a dynasty if he remained faithful. But Solomon, on the other hand, rather than accepting the rebuke and repenting, which he received for what he had done, he ends up going, continuing on the way he, in the path he had been in. From his father, he learned, and so Rehoboam, or Solomon dies, Rehoboam becomes king, and we can see, or at least, you know, we can assume that he learns, Rehoboam learns from his father what a sham really is. Solomon started well, he ends poorly, but he was able to keep a persona that was good. And Rehoboam says, hey, if dad can get away with it, I can get away with it too. But unfortunately, really, Solomon didn't get away with it. Uh, he, saw, he sees Jeroboam as a threat, and so he sends him off to live in Egypt Instead of truly repenting and turning from his sin, that's the first step in the kingdom of Israel becoming divided, which it ultimately does. So Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes his place on the throne. He had learned from his dad how to live a sham of a life, a phony life in public, and all the while he nurtures behind the scenes this phony, failing, and ungodly life. Let's look at 1 Kings 12, verses 1 through 4. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. 
When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard about it, he stayed in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon's presence. Jeroboam stayed in Egypt, but they summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam. Your father made our yoke harsh. You therefore lighten your father's harsh service and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. That's one of the things that Solomon did. He was pretty rough on his subjects. And so these, these that approach Rehoboam, look who approaches him. All of Israel, the country's most influential leaders, approach the king. They represent the people. They're led by a man who had been in exile for several years. Especially during the last half of his reign, Solomon, while he was successful, because of what he had done... He, was, he lost respect with the people, okay? So he, he's not as respected as he once was. And with Rehoboam's ascension, they hoped to find relief. Rehoboam buys a little time here. Seems like he's listening, but we have to continue on. Verses 5 through 7, Rehoboam replied, Go away for three days and return to me. So the people left, so it seems like he's considering it, right? Give me some time to think about this. So the people left. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon when he was alive, asking, how do you advise me to respond to this people? They replied, today if you will be a servant of this people and serve them, and if you respond to them by speaking kind words to them, they will be your servants forever. So it appears like he's getting counsel, like he's receiving counsel, right? That's the impression that he's giving. He puts the question to the council of men that had 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 served his father. They had seen the day, nation decline, but they remained faithful. These are faithful men. Their advice was that he, unlike his father, truly become a servant king. That was his advice, their advice to him. But the next words in verse 8 confirm that all of what Rehoboam's doing here, appearing to seek counsel, is just a sham. He rejected the advice of the elders who had advised him and consulted with the young men who had grown up with him and attended him. So Rehoboam pretends to seek counsel from these wise individuals, but he clearly, or at least it appears, he, he already had made up his mind what to do here. He wasn't looking for advice. He was looking for justification. He wasn't looking for guidance. He was looking for people who agreed with him, which he knew those younger men would. And it becomes evident that this is the case in verses 9 through 11. He calls in the guys who use some pretty colorful language to advise him to say, you think your father was tough, wait till you get a load of me. It's basically what they tell him to do, and that's what he does. He summons Jeroboam and the nation to hear his decision, verse 13. Of chapter 12. The king answered the people harshly. He rejected the advice of the, that the elders had given him, and he spoke to them according to the young men's advice. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with barbed whips. Yoked, barbed whips. He looked at the kingdom as one that should be driven by the whip and by burden, and, and burdened by the yoke, but Instead of being served and built up by forced labor, the master-slave relationship, that's how he viewed his relationship to the people. 
And you think about that empty ice cream container, right? I'm just going to keep coming back to that and make you guys more hungry. But from the outside, you really couldn't tell if anything was in it, right? I mean, you don't know until you look on the inside. And from the outside, even with this, how he handles this, Rehoboam's actions look like he was a wise young ruler seeking counsel. But behind the scenes, we begin to see that this was all just a phony counseling session. He got the guys in there he wanted to hear from, and he was determined to take their advice. He would soon find out that the position he had, which he was secure when he takes the throne because Solomon had achieved that, but he's finding out, or he will soon, that it wasn't quite as secure as he thought it would be. Kings, even powerful rich kings, need the loyalty of their subjects to keep their crowns. Look at verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king had not listened to them, the people answered him, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Israel, returned to your tents. David, now look after your own house. So Israel went to their tents. So a terrible, terrible civil war breaks out. All right, The nation had been unified for more than a century, and now it becomes divided. It's shattered. Ten of the twelve tribes side with Jeroboam, which had been predicted, right? So ten of those twelve tribes side with Jeroboam against Rehoboam, who kept only the land belonging to Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem is the capital. And so you have Israel, ten of the twelve tribes, and Judah, which is where Rehoboam is. And we see, I mean, you would hope that Rehoboam, that would be a wake-up call for him. But no, 2 Chronicles parallels this and offers more details. 2 Chronicles 11, verses 1 through 4. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mobilized the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 fit young soldiers to fight against Israel to restore the reign to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of of Judah, to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. You are not to march up and fight against your brothers. Each of you return home, for this incident has come from me. So they listened to what the Lord said and turned back from going against Jeroboam. So God says, don't fight, go back home. Don't fight. Nathan told David the sword would never depart from his house, and here we see that continuing to be the case. We talked a little bit about that last week. We see it happening in some of his other children. The sword never does. God's saying, though, don't fight. I'm in control. I've got this. You guys just go home, and I'll take care of this. He prepared Rehoboam. He appeared to have obeyed God's command, but again, this was an act. Behind the scenes, he prepares for war, which is what God said not to do, right? So he prepares for war. He prepares 15 cities in his territory for siege, strengthening the walls. He stocks them with weapons, provisions, everything needed for war. And it looks like he's preparing the nation to defend itself against Egypt, which is a good thing to do. But that's not really what's going on. What he's really doing is he's preparing his cities for war. He's preparing, he's doing exactly what God had told him not to do. And evidently his plan to appear godly has the right effect. 
In verses 13 through 17 of 2 Chronicles 11, which again parallels this, Jeroboam worried that his people would begin to switch their allegiance to Rehoboam as they continued to worship in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. So he established a couple of worship centers where he is. And he, he does this so that he could attempt to woo them to, away from worshiping in Jerusalem so that he can gain support and, and continue to maintain the support that he has. But the people love the Lord. They uproot their lives and they move south so that they can worship in the Lord's temple. So on the, at the moment, Rehoboam's plan is working as he planned. He does this to try to draw people saying this is where you need to worship, which was, you know, true. But God had separated the kingdom, and Rehoboam's not really wanting people. He's not really worried about their spirituality. He's just trying to get more people on his side. He's trying to draw them to where he is, and he did it well. You know, he puts on this facade, and it works, and people move back. And so for the time being, he's accomplishing what he wants. But this was a temporary success. Because we see next the emergence of a phony. You know, there's, if you read, you can find there's been some pretty good scams in history. Some people are really good at conning individuals. And there's one from several years ago that I think, you know, is one of the more interesting ones. There, it's, it's old, but... Long, long time ago, dishonest mine owners would try to trick people into buying fake gold mines. And so what they would do is they would plant a few nuggets of gold. Some of them would even load their shotguns and shoot gold into rocks in the mines. They would show people the mines and say, hey, this has got to be full of gold. They would sell them, and turns out it was just a joke. It was just fake. It was a scam. And we've seen scams today. There are those 900 scams where they'll call you, and if you call them back, don't ever call a number back that you don't know because they'll immediately start charging you for that call, and you won't know till you get your phone bill. There's a text scam, too, that kind of accomplishes the same thing. And, and there, there are all kinds of, you know, if people spend as much time thinking these things up, if they spent that time on, like, I don't know, curing cancer, they might, you know, can you imagine? The creativity that goes into these scams is amazing. But this one I, I thought was very interesting. The Eiffel Tower was constructed in 1889 at the World Fair. It co- coincided with the 100-year anniversary of the French Revolution. Well, it was once the tallest structure until the Chrysler Building was built. But in 1925, a guy by the name of Vis- Victor Lustig, was he was about 35 years old. And as you can imagine, that large structure, metal structure, was pretty hard to maintain. Well, he came up with an idea that he was going to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. Well, he didn't have the right to do that, but he thought, hey, there's a scrap metal dealer out there gullible enough to where I can sell this to him. And not only did he got several bids, by the way, and not only did he sell it to someone because he had other bids, he was so good at conning, he was able to even get a bribe out of the guy in addition to the selling cost for the Eiffel Tower. He sold the Eiffel Tower, and he got away with it. 
The guy was so embarrassed who bought it, he didn't even report it to police. When he found out that he had been scammed, he didn't report it to police. So after the scam, Lustig moves to Virginia, uh, Vienna, not Virginia, <laughs> Vienna. He moves to Vienna, suitcases full of cash. He considered the fraud so successful, he decides, hey, I bet I can do it again. He moves back to Paris to do it again with another uh, separate scrap metal dealer. He didn't succeed the second time, but he still never went to jail. He got away with it. I mean, this is a guy who's pretty bold and pretty brave. In the United States, George C. Parker carried out a similar con when he sold the Brooklyn Bridge several times <laughs> to other people. People, here, get this, police had to repeatedly remove barricades people were setting up to install toll booths on the Brooklyn Bridge because they thought they had just bought it and they could do that. But nope, didn't happen. In India, a man named... Not Warlaw, I'm not pronouncing that right, I'm sure, but that's his name, became famous for having sold the Taj Mahal, the Red Fort, and Parliament House. He was last seen in 1996 at the age of 86, and he's thought to have died in freedom sometime between 1996 and 2009. He was never arrested for it. All scams have something in common, though. Can you think of what it is? Well, gullibility, yes. But what eventually happens? Excuse me. What eventually happens? The person being scammed will eventually find out. It may be after they've paid, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Eiffel Tower, but they're eventually going to find out. I mean, you can fool people for a while, but eventually they are going to discover that you are a fraud, that you were scamming them. And Rehoboam was no different. His life was a huge scam, and it's all about to become evident to everybody involved. Second Chronicles eleven seventeen, we see the public side of Rehoboam. Verse 18 goes behind the scenes to look at his domestic life, his personal life. And the first thing we notice is that he was a lot like what Solomon eventually became. Look at verse 18 of chapter 11, Second Chronicles. Rehoboam married Mahalath, daughter of David's son, Jeremoth, and of Abihel, daughter of Jesse's son, Eliab. She bore sons to him, Jeus, Shemaria, and Zaham. After her, he married Mekah, daughter of Absalom. She bore Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelemith to him. Rehoboam loved Mekah, daughter of Absalom, more than all of his wives, and concubines. This is important. He acquired 18 wives and 60 concubines and was the father of 28 sons and 60 daughters. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even handle my four. <laughs> so he married his cousins, which to us is, yeah, but in this day and time, it was smart because you kept the royal blood going, right? So the line. It was smart, but the problem was he was making the same mistake as Solomon. He had lust in his heart, and it was a huge, huge problem for him. Within a generation or two, the seed of compromise grows into shameless rebellion here. David married pagan women. Solomon built altars to those gods of theirs and even worshipped those gods of theirs, something his father David did not do. 
And Rehoboam follows right in his father's footsteps in this way. And then he passed that legacy to his son. 2 Chronicles eleven twenty two, Rehoboam appointed Abijah, son of uh, Mekah, as chief leader among his brothers, intending to make him king. Rehoboam also showed discernment by dispersing some of his sons to all the regions of Judah and Benjamin and to all the fortified cities. He gave them plenty of provisions and sought many wives. So he disperses his sons to all these different regions, right, which seems smart on the surface. And that word discernment actually is probably better translated skillful or skillfully. He's using skill here, military smarts, I mean, again, on the surface, it seems like a smart thing to do. He acts shrewdly, skillfully with discernment using a specialized training in the art of warfare here. Nevertheless, it was done. The problem with it was it was done in direct disobedience to God. And this is how the ancient world built and maintained the kingdom. So what he was doing was not, you know, no one would have really even thought anything of it except that God told him not to do it. But Israel represented God's people. Any kingdom would do this, but Israel represented God's people, and Israel was supposed to be different. Israel was supposed to do things differently. And 1 Kings 14 details this next period in Rehoboam's life. After he's crowned, he pretends to get counsel. He splits the country, right? We covered that. He acted like he trusted the Lord, was going to obey God, but then he goes and he builds fortresses which he wasn't supposed to do. God had told him not to. He presented himself as a godly man to lure God-fearing families to Jerusalem. But then he fills his harem with idolatrous women. So he continues the sin of Solomon. In the next stage of life, Rehoboam's facade crumbles to reveal the hypocrisy that kind of propped up his public image. Look at Verse 21 of 1 Kings 14. Now Rehoboam, Solomon's son, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city where the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put up, to put his name. Rehoboam's mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. Now two things. First, this, this verse seems like just a collection of random facts. But they're jammed so close together, it leads me to believe, this is the second thing, that it's anything but random facts. And it's God's word, so it's important. And we see, I think I can explain why these are not just random facts. Rehoboam lived in a city, Jerusalem. Does anybody know what that means? Jerusalem. It means city of peace. That's the name of the city. It was a city where God wanted his name, Yahweh. Where God dwelt in the Old Testament. But we see another fact here. Rehoboam's mother's name was Nama. She was from Ammon. She was an Ammonite. Rehoboam wanted his capital city to look like the city of the Lord. But underneath we see, in fact, it's really the opposite of the city of the Lord. It was the city of Nama. The Ammonitess and her idols, Melech and Milcom. Now, the name Nama means sweetness and pleasantness, and it probably described her personality. She's probably a nice lady, okay? Nobody's really denying that. The significance of why this is mentioned, though, of what Rehoboam's mother was that she was the Ammonitess. She had considerable influence. So much so 
that she convinces her husband, who was Solomon, to abandon Yahweh. And so we see on the outside, he's given this appearance that, hey, this is the city of the Lord. You need to come here to worship God. You can't do that where you are. But what's he really building on the inside? Idolatry. I mean, it's all, it's all a charade. It's all a facade. And we're beginning to see it uncrumble or crumble in, in, our, in front of our very eyes. She has influence. Rehoboam was nurtured by Nama, the Ammonitess, the worshiper of Milcom, Melech. She raised him to worship those gods and idols. And Solomon allowed the practice. Remember, he built the temples. He allowed it to go on. Ended up doing it himself. So it should not surprise us that Rehoboam led his kingdom into the same deadly trap. Look at verse 22. Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They provoked him to jealous anger, and more than all that their ancestors, all that their ancestors had done, with the sins they committed, they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and a share poles on every hill high and uh, every high hill and under every green tree. There were even male cult prostitutes in the land. They imitated all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. In just two generations, this has all happened. David's sin with Bathsheba leads to this. These are part of the consequences that were predicted. But what's astonishing here is that if you were just to look at it from the outside, Rehoboam would appear godly, faithful, everything that he was supposed to be. He was good at doing that. But once you look on the inside, the ice cream container is empty. There's no substance. Not only is it empty, he's building another kingdom to another God that he's been influenced to, to do by his mother. I mean, there's, he, he, not only is he just presenting this facade, he's actually doing the opposite behind the scenes. And it's going to come back to haunt him. We see Israel is supposed to be this witness to the lands around it. It was the promised land. But it was polluted. By this point. And this is where we see the fall of the phony. The truth is, Rehoboam had been this way all along. It's just no one knew it unless they got a closer look, unless they got a peek behind the scenes. He was morally bankrupt. And until the southern cities were fortified and his wealth secured against an invasion, he maintained this false image. But as soon as he felt secure, the real Rehoboam comes out. 2 Chronicles 12, verse 1, when Rehoboam had established his sovereignty and royal power, he abandoned the law of the Lord. So he gets a place where he feels secure and he says, I'm not even going to pretend anymore. I'm abandoning it altogether. He and all Israel with him because of his influence. Now, a lot of people, you probably heard this, you probably heard people say success can ruin a person. You ever heard that? I don't believe that. I believe success just reveals who the person was all along. And I think that's why success can be dangerous because if you're not, if your character, if your foundation in Christ is not secure, then if you gain success, that's all going to come out eventually. And that's what happens here. When, when Rehoboam needed help on the way up, he was willing to be anything he needed to be to anybody around him, whatever he was, what it needed to appear to be. But once he arrives, he becomes 
who he really is. The truth is, success doesn't destroy character, it exposes character. It exposes who you really are, and it did in this case. But the Lord is not going to allow this to continue. Second Chronicles 12, verses 4 through 9. He captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. Then the prophet Shammah went to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak. He said to them, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me, therefore I have abandoned you to Shishak. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. When the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, the Lord's message came to Shammah. They have humbled themselves. I will not destroy them, but will grant them a little, little deliverance. I will grant them a little deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. However, they will become his servants so that they may recognize the difference between serving me and serving the kingdoms of other lands. They wanted to worship the gods of other lands. He says, all right, well, I'm going to let you find out what it's like to serve the kings of those other lands and see who's more gracious, who's more loving. So the king, so King Shishak of Egypt went to war against Jerusalem. He seized the treasuries of the Lord's temple and the treasuries of the royal palace. He took everything. He took the gold shields that Solomon had made. So the fortresses are knocked off one by one. It shakes Rehoboam to his core. He repents of his sin at the last minute. It was a foxhole faith, but the Lord accepted it. He shows mercy. Instead of allowing them to be completely destroyed, he shows mercy. And instead, notice I emphasize little deliverance because he still allows them to become slaves to Egypt, the king of Egypt. He, He allows them to be defeated, and now they get to see what it's like to serve a king other than God's king, other than God himself. Solomon, you know, it's interesting here. Rehoboam loses everything that Solomon gained. And Solomon had gained up vast treasure. He loses it all. And Solomon had set up in the, in the temple, he, these, he had built these huge public buildings and artisans crafted by 500 golden shields. Um, or he had artisans crafted 500 golden shields as, as a, an example of the glory of God, and the wealth that he had given Solomon. And it was a symbol of Israel's strength and might, which is really, of course, the strength of God and God's might. The gold was worth somewhere around $176 million today. All right? So these shields were part of what was taken. The good news is Rehoboam repents to a certain degree. And God shows mercy. The bad news is that we find out very quickly Rehoboam never really changes by what he does next. Look at what he did after the Egyptians took those shields. Verse 10 of chapter 12, 2 Chronicles. King Rehoboam made bronze shields. Doesn't have the gold anymore. So he still kind of passed things off as real that's not. Bronze shields to replace them and committed them into the care of of the captains of the guards who protected the entrance to the king's palace. Whenever the king entered the Lord's temple, the guards would carry out the shields and then take them back to the armory. So what he does here, he makes these shields of bronze to replace the golden ones, but he doesn't keep them on display. Somebody might find out. He brings them out for special functions 
so that he can pretend, and then he has them put them up when those functions are over with. So first, he pretends to seek counsel, but it's not really real because he knows what he's going to do all along. He brings in his yes man, men, and then he does what he wants to do all along. Then he pretended to obey the Lord when the Lord told him not to fight, but then he spent years preparing his cities for war, years, dispersing his sons, building fortresses, what God told him not to do. He was given a city that was to have the name of Yahweh, the city of peace, where God's name, God wanted his name to be, but it really bore the name of Nama, the pagan Melech worshiper. Finally, when the golden symbols of the kingdom are gone, God's might, the might of the city of Israel, the glory of God, representing all those things, when that's gone, the might's taken by Egypt due to his sins, he continues the charade and replaces them with a cheap imitation. So it appears that he doesn't learn his lesson. Might's taken away. God makes them subject to Egypt. And the final verse of 2 Chronicles is basically the legacy of Rehoboam. He rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. His son Abijah took, became king in his place. He's a, he was a phony through and through. But here's a question, okay? And this is a tough question. It's a question for all of us, myself included. We all need to ask this question. One phony died back then, right? How many are still alive today? How many of us are really who we say we are when we're not in this building on Sunday mornings? And you can come to church, you can speak the lingo, you can do all the right things, you can uh, have a scam call in the middle of your sermon. <laughs> scam, appropriate. You can do all of these things to pretend to be somebody that you're not, and you'll fool some of the people some of the time. But you can't fool them forever. We should want our lives at home, in private, in secret, to match what we present in public. And if they don't, no one else may notice, but God will notice. And you may get away with it for a while, but eventually it's all going to come out. And that's exactly what happened to Rehoboam. I found this a couple years ago, and I, I think it's hilarious. It's spray on mud for your car. I don't even know if it's still available for sale, but a few years back, it was really popular. You know why they developed this? So the SUV owners who lived in the city who couldn't go mud riding would, would maintain respect as SUV owners. I'm not joking. The owner of the company said that. He said suburban four-wheel drive owners can maintain their dignity with new spray-on mud. That was the purpose. So if you couldn't go mud riding, you could at least spray it on. And here's the kicker, this stuff, let me, let me get, this stuff was $14.95 a can, which probably doesn't seem that strange right now with everything going up. But people would actually buy this and spray it on their cars so that they could look like they had gone mud riding. I, don't, I just don't know how to respond to that, except <laughs> the links that people will go to to pretend to be something they're not. To have achieved something that they haven't. And this is a humorous example of that. But again, we all need to ask, 
if other people were behind the scenes of our lives, would they see what we present when we're with God's people? We're all here today, and I truly believe you're here today because you love God and want to worship Him, you want to serve Him, or at least you're interested in knowing who God is if you've walked in here for the first time. But we all also have the tendency to get in the mindset of as long as I go to church on Sunday, I sing the songs, I clap when I'm supposed to, I listen to some of the message, then I can go do whatever I want the rest of the week and nobody will ever know. But God knows. And as we see with Rehoboam, he's not pleased when his people present a facade. He's not pleased when his people pretend to be something that they're not really on the inside. Because what happens, not only did Rehoboam suffer, but the entire nation of Israel suffered because of his phoniness, because of his facade. Self-evaluation, evaluation by the Holy Spirit. Because the truth is, God desires that we be committed to him. God desires that we be sold out to him. So the advice that we should take from this story is be committed or not. Be faithful or not. Don't straddle the fence. Don't try to be lukewarm. It could lead to the spiritual downfall, your spiritual downfall, and as with David and Solomon, the spiritual downfall of your entire family. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you do to sustain us. We talk about being faithful, and certainly there's commitment involved on our part, but you give us the strength to be faithful. You give us the strength to remain committed. Without your presence in our lives, we could do nothing to please you. But because you have saved us and redeemed us, those of us who know you, you live within us, you've restored us, you're making us more like your son each day. And because of that, we can serve you and be obedient to you and do things that please you. But we know that you're not pleased if we are pretending to be spiritual, if we're pretending to be godly, but we're not really that way behind the scenes. In the deep, dark places of our life, we're withholding things from you. We're not committed. We're not submitted. And those who know us best see those chinks in our armor. None of us are perfect, but there's a difference between not being perfect and leading a phony lifestyle. Lord, may we be authentic. Just search our hearts in this moment. Go down deep. There may be things we're not even aware of that we don't see because we've become so accustomed, so desensitized to them. Show us now so that we can repent and turn from that sin Help us to be authentic followers, not pretending to have it all together, not to be pretending to be more spiritual than we are, but real, searching for you, pursuing you in everything that we do, motivated by accomplishing your purposes and doing it your way, motivated by our love for you that you've shown us so extravagantly. Lord, may we seek to please you in all that we do individually, in our families, and in this church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment?